Well, as I mentioned, we are back in John's first letter this morning. So go ahead and turn with me to 1 John. And we'll be in chapter 2. We'll continue where we left off a couple weeks ago after we took a little break because Pastor Ben was with us and then a little break as we detoured to talk about suffering last week from the book of Philippians. Uh, This morning we're back in 1 John chapter 2, and as we get back to our study here, we have to realize that up to this point in what we've considered, the Apostle has been teaching what we might consider to be many hard things to his readers. We have to understand that. And now whether or not you or I or whoever was reading John's letter, whether we or not we consider them to be hard, we have to realize that at least from John's vantage point, he's communicating things that as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, would weigh heavy on his heart to have to convey to his people. These are hard and sober things that have difficult consequences. Think about it. John has spent most of his letter up to this point telling the people that it is entirely possible that they are deceived about their true spiritual condition. He's saying that it is not unrealistic to think that there are a number of people in the congregations to which he is writing that say that they walk in the light, but in reality, they're walking in darkness. That's really the whole point of why he's writing these things. I've said it a few times in the past couple of weeks that the most sobering reality in all the universe is that there are people who spend much of their lives and possibly even all of their lives in a state of complete deception. They sit in church pews, they give offerings, they maybe dress up real nice and they even do some, some churchy things in their lives. But in reality, they are deceived and they actually walk in darkness and not in the light. And that is a vastly sobering reality because those religious seeming persons who think they're in the light but aren't, they, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the last day, they will be judged and numbered with those who are condemned to hell. Even though they might have spent a good amount of time in life hanging around the Christians, in the end, they won't for eternity be with the Christians. And that's very sobering. John has been mercifully sounding the alarm, as it were, in the verses that we've been considering up to this point. He's been setting forth the very real predicament that many persons in the church find themselves in. He's been making it clear for his readers the possibility of how they might discern where they actually are, what their state actually is. And he's proclaimed in no uncertain terms that those who walk in darkness are blind liars who do not know the truth. So he's been setting forth in great clarity for his readers what the stakes are. It's very possible that you might sit in darkness even though you think you're in the light, essentially is what he's been saying to his readers. And here's how you can know for sure. He's been calling us to evaluate ourselves. And these are hard things to say. Which of us likes to be the bearer of hard news? 
Do you envy the duty of the surgeon who has to walk into the family waiting room only to inform the loved ones there that this child whom they love dearly, that even though he did all he could, he couldn't save him? We wouldn't want to be that surgeon. Do you think that the police officers look forward to their obligation to show up at the door of an unsuspecting family in order to tell them that their loved one has just died in a car accident? Of course, surgeons and police officers do not look forward to those duties. And possibly to a much more sobering extent, it must pain John deeply to have to bear the message of the possibility of a false conversion to his readers because the consequence is eternal. It must pain him immensely. But more than the pain of having to share this sobering message with his sheep, it's not the only concern that John would have, that a shepherd has as, as sharing this message. You see, not only does a shepherd want to give clarity to the true nature of Christianity so that he does not wrongly assure a false convert. He doesn't want a false sheep to think they are okay. So that's why he's saying these hard things. But at the same time, a good shepherd, a good pastor also doesn't want to wrongly condemn a true sheep. He doesn't want those who are true to walk away worrying that they might be false when in fact they're not false. Do you see that as a hard balance that a good shepherd has to walk? If a shepherd warns his sheep too harshly, then he might accidentally cause a true lamb to worry and doubt and fear when they ought not worry and doubt and fear. But if he does not warn them harshly enough, then he might unwittingly falsely assure a goat that is mixed in with the sheep. And he doesn't want to do that either. So this is the difficult tightrope that John is walking as he's writing this letter. And certainly I feel this balance as I'm trying to teach this letter. Because the last thing I want to do as one explaining the text is have a false convert walk out of here thinking I'm okay. Nor would I ever want a true convert to walk out of here thinking, oh no, I really need to worry. That's the last thing. Both of those things are the last thing that a shepherd wants to do. So this is the balance that John is trying to strike. And so I believe this is why we come to the section that we come to in what we're studying today in John's letter. And John, in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, going to verse 14, we read of Pastor John's effort to assure his sheep. He's been telling them hard things for several verses, and now he takes a step back. And he wants to give comfort and assurance to the true sheep. These are the words of a loving pastor who wants his true sheep to be assured that they indeed walk in the light. And so th these words are going to become what your humble shepherd would have you understand so that you might not wrongly conclude that you walk in darkness if indeed you do not. And so with that introduction, let's begin by reading together these words of pastoral encouragement from 1 John 1, verses 12 to 14. We'll actually read through it again a little bit later, but for now, let's introduce ourselves to what John is saying by looking at these verses. 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. The Apostle John writes this. I am writing to you, little children, 
because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, you can probably see the natural organization that we find in these verses. Let me bring it to your attention just so you can clearly see it there. John, first of all, writes to the little children or the children. And then he writes also to the fathers. And then thirdly, he writes to what he pens as the young men. At least in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from, they're referred to as the young men. And so what we're going to do for today is, first of all, seek to come to understand exactly who John is referring to when he says little children and when he says fathers and when he says young men. We're going to begin there, trying to figure out who these people are. So first of all, let's begin by asking that question, who exactly are these different groups of people? And I've consulted a few commentaries and everyone seems to come to the conclusion that these Groups of persons refer to Christians at various stages of their maturity. And I think that makes sense to us. I don't think that's hard to see that that's what John is doing. I don't have any reason to disagree with this idea. And I think it's the best way to explain what John is trying to convey. So let's begin, first of all, by thinking about who the little children refer to. If we're looking at people in different stages of Christian maturity, the little children are those who are the little saplings of Christian progression. They are just new to faith in Christianity. These are those who are new converts. They're those who are maybe young in age. These are the Christians who appear as little shoots up from the ground, and we really haven't seen them begin to develop very much. It just came to my mind, as some of, you, some of you know from the Sunday School Hour, yesterday we just got a puppy. And so the puppy is in my mind right now as I'm thinking about the little Christians stumbling around over everything that they do. The little shoots, the little newborns, the little puppies, if, if you would. These are the, the, the if you look back at, at the parable of the soils, I've been mentioning that a few times over the course of our study. These are the ones that, if you remember the middle soils, the little shoots came up. And at first, we can't tell if these are genuine or not. Because in the two middle soils, the stony and the thorny, as well as in the good soil, what are we going to see at first? We're going to see a little sprout come up. And so the little children are those who are in the true soil... They're truly converted, but they're just a little sprout. They're brand new coming up from the ground. And we're going to treat them with care, and they have unique struggles. But we must understand that those who are true branches upon Christ's vine, they will never be able to disconnect themselves from his vine. Those who walk in the light will not stumble into darkness. So these little children are true sprouts that will certainly sprout into fruitfulness. 
They definitely will. And so we're here thinking about how we can assure and affirm these little sprouts to grow into what they're going to grow into as mature Christians. So that's the little children. Secondly, John refers to the fathers. That's the next group that we come to in this set of verses. And it seems pretty easy to conclude that these are those who are more seasoned in the Christian faith. These are those who may indeed be spiritual fathers in that they have seen other people become converted by means of their teaching or their shepherding or their discipleship. There are those who are fathers, not only in a physical sense, but maybe even in a spiritual sense. It might often be the case that these are those who are older in the faith and even older in age as well. And I don't think that we need to limit, actually I know that we do not need to limit this group to only the men. Remember, only men can be fathers. But I think it's most obvious to consider that this group includes those who are mature women as well, the mothers in the faith, as it were. And one of the best places in Scripture that I can think of to learn about the nature of this group of people is something that we learn in Titus chapter 2. So if you would, please turn with me there to Titus chapter 2 for just a moment, just a few pages to the left in Scripture. I've often thought of the book of Titus as a sort of like a local church 101. It's a very practical and relevant manual for how a church is to be a church. It's the basic and fundamental manual for the local church, if you would. And right at the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Titus, Paul tells Pastor Titus about his main obligation, who is the pastor of the congregation. Paul left Titus at Crete and, and then wrote him a letter again to help him do his job well. And that's what we've got here in the book of Titus. And Paul says in Titus 2 and verse 1, he says, But as for you, Pastor Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And at this point, we might think about the specific doctrines that Pastor Titus would then teach. He would teach the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the authority of Scripture and the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the deity of Christ and a host of other doctrines that accord with sound doctrine. That's what we would think Titus would have in his mind at this point. But it's interesting to know what Paul specifically calls Titus to teach in accordance with sound doctrine. You see, in the rest of chapter 2, Paul writes about the lifestyles of certain groups of people within the local church. And so the Apostle Paul is indicating that Titus is essentially supposed to tell people how they are to live in light of the truth of sound doctrine. So if you're going to teach what accords with sound doctrine, well then teach people how they're supposed to live with where they're at. Now, we can get into all these groups of people in this chapter at a different time, perhaps, and that might be helpful. But I want to focus your attention on the very first two groups that Paul tells Titus to address. And I do not think it is an accident that these are the first two groups of people that Paul tells Titus to consider as he's teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, 
are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So if we decided to sign up for this online class that's taught by Paul called Local Church 101, and if someone were to send in the question to ask him and they were to say, Mr. Apostle Paul, what is the most important thing that we should teach in our church concerning how to live a life that fits with sound doctrine? What's the most important thing that we should teach and look for in our church? What do you suppose he would answer? Well, we would probably at first expect a possible range of answers from loving God, make sure you love your neighbor, make sure you read your scripture, make sure you pray as a church, all sorts of other important things like that. That's what we might expect from Paul. But what we find that Professor Paul actually says is the first instruction to a church that wants to operate in a sound way. It's this. The church must be sure that its older men and older women are living rightly. It's the first priority. And I think that's somewhat counterintuitive to the way we think. And I know it's counterintuitive to the way the world wants us to think. And we know that just by examining modern church theory. Because modern churches today flirt with the exact opposite of this. I, this week, in, in considering this point, I googled... The phrase, how to attract young people to church. And I got a bunch of responses, 29,800,000 of them to be exact. And then after that, I googled how to attract old people to church. And guess what links I got? I got pages and pages and pages of links that tell you how to attract young people to church. Not a single thing on how to attract old people to church. I looked through probably a dozen different pages of results, hundreds of pages of results, hundreds of results, and all of them were the same results as when I Googled how to attract young people to church. No one is writing on how to attract old people to church. That's the point. No one cares today about attracting the mature saint to their church. All we want today is the young family because they have more energy to do stuff and because they'll have a more long-term offering capacity. But why wouldn't we rather want to attract the mature Christian to our church? Isn't that what we should want? Why wouldn't we want more than anything to have a mature, seasoned, wise Christian couple show up in our church and say, Oh, this is where I want to worship. This is where we want to be. Such a couple would want to stay at a mature church because they would recognize the marks of maturity that a local church should evidence. And so that's why the Apostle Paul begins his list of how to teach what accords with sound doctrine by talking about how the older men and older women are supposed to act. Because hopefully, if we are doing church the right way, we will have some of those people in our midst, or at least we would be able to keep them here if God brought them our way. And all that to say that one of the most important and often overlooked groups within the local church includes the mature saints. John not only wants to encourage the young, sapling, baby Christians, but we notice back in 1 John 2, he's aiming at encouraging those saints. He twice in this passage mentions how he wants to affirm and encourage the fathers. 
the seasoned saints. And we'll talk more about them when we get to considering what he says to them. Same as we'll talk more about what John says to the, to the little children. But then we come to this third group of people back in 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. And it's the group that God, John calls the young men. We've got the little children. We've got the fathers and mothers. And then we have the young men. And again, we should be quick to point out that he's talking about the young men and the young women. The New English Translation that is a, is a really good one that I encourage you all to get a copy of, actually words it as the young people in order to appropriately catch the full sense. And I believe the best way to figure out who it is that fits into the young people group, if we want to know who they are, is to simply say that they are those who are somewhere in between the little children and the fathers. So if you're not in the little children group, you're not a little sapling, and you're not... The seasoned, mature, wise sages of the church. If you're somewhere in between, then you're one of the young people. And frankly, I think that's most of us, if not all of us. I believe that most Christians probably fall into this group that we consider the young people. You see, we all used to be the little children, and we all one day to hope to be one of the fathers or the mothers. And so John's words of assurance and affirmation to all the different groups are truly applicable to all of us to be, because regardless of where we're at, we all used to be the beginning and we're all aiming to be the mature. And so everything that John writes here in his words of affirmation to these different groups really applies to all of us. And what we're going to find to be true is that John provides words of assurance and encouragement that fit with the particular needs of each group. So wherever we find ourselves, we have encouragement from Pastor John here that fits our particular struggles. He offers us all words of encouragement that are tailored to precisely where we are at in our growth. So let's begin considering how the pastor shepherd affirms his Sheep. And I'm going to read through these verses again, 1 John 2, 12 to 14, so that we can begin to see what it is exactly that John says to the different groups. We've broken them down into the groups, and so now let's focus our attention on what John says to each of the groups. So let's look again, 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And I hope you notice that John addresses each group twice. In verse 12, he speaks to the little children. And then in verse 13, he addresses the father and then the young people and then the children again. And then in verse 14, he speaks to the fathers and then to the young people. So it's twice to both groups. And in that same pattern, he goes children, fathers, young people, children, fathers, young people. That's, that's what John does. And so I'm going to walk through what John specifically and pastorally says to encourage 
each of these three groups. And I'll do so by considering both of the times that he addresses the groups. He addresses them once and then second. So I'm going to put those two things together for each of the groups as we walk through these. And as you can tell from your outline, we're only going to get through the first one today. So we're going to talk about the little children, what he says to them today. And then next time we'll get into what he says to the fathers and then also to the young people. So first of all, this is how Pastor John encourages the little children. And the point is this, because I've entitled this sermon, How the Shepherd Affirms His Sheep. And so the first way that the shepherd affirms his sheep is this. The shepherd affirms the children's relationship with the father or to the father. The shepherd affirms the children's relationship to the father. He encourages them to recognize the relationship that they have with their father. And we're going to see that this shepherd inclination is simply the one that wishes to help Christians gain assurance that they are indeed Christians. Essentially, this point boils down to how the pastor helps assure his sheep. How the little children, how the sheep, how all Christians really should have assurance. Notice verse 12. John says that he's writing to the little children because... Their sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus' name. And then notice at the end of verse 13, John says that he's writing to the children because they know the Father. Now, as I've already mentioned, John is targeting with these words a point of concern or a point of doubt or fear that the little children would have uniquely struggled with. And I think it's pretty clear to us, and it's kind of intuitive, John realizes that those who are little children are the ones who will tend to doubt their relationship to the Father. They're brand new into this relationship, and they will tend to doubt if it's really real. So for a moment, let's crawl inside the mind of a newborn Christian. And maybe you remember this vividly. Maybe you remember what it was like to be a brand new Christian. Maybe you yourself are a brand new Christian. Let's imagine that there is a new Christian who has recently come to understand the the nature of forgiveness of sin by the work of Christ. They are new to understand that they now have fellowship with God. They can call their creator Father. They can, as it were, cry Abba, Daddy, Father to him. This is new to them. And one of the things that the new Christian begins to understand is that they have undergone a complete transformation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They have life and they can walk and they see for the first time. And so they also find that for the first time in their lives, they're able to not sin. I was just tempted with something. I didn't give in to it. I used to go headlong into that sin, and now I find that I don't have a taste for it anymore. This is great. And so that's what the young Christian experiences for the first time, and it's brand new to them. But what do you suppose happens to that new Christian when all of a sudden they find themselves falling to temptation? And they find themselves falling into sin again. And perhaps they fall into a sin that they used to commit a lot. 
And maybe they fall into sin in a grievous way. What goes through their mind when that inevitably happens? Because that happens to all of us. They might think, well, I blew it. God must be done with me now. I had a, I had a great streak for a while. and It's just all falling apart now. Or they might think, I guess God's power has left me. I had it and now I don't. They might think, for sure, I have fallen out of favor with God now. I remember when I was a very young child, very young, I don't even remember my age, maybe four, five. I prayed one night before bed with my mom, some version of the sinner's prayer. And I don't know if that's when I was converted. I really have no idea when that happened. But I, I remember the very next night before bed, asking my mom if I needed to pray that again because, and I remember this distinctly, because I sinned a lot that day. I remember thinking, do I need to do this again because I'm still sinning? I'm supposed to be perfect now, right? Was kind of the impression that I had. I understood the connection between sinning and not having assurance even as a, as a young child. And that's what's true perhaps of many young Christians or even, even some older mature Christians from time to time. We connect sin with lack of assurance. And it's entirely possible to find yourself in despair if one day you came to know that you were accepted by the holy God of heaven because of the merit of Christ, but then the next day you sinned in a terrible way against him. If you have not lived long in the knowledge of the long-suffering patience and mercy of the Father, then you may at first view him to be one who would remove you from his presence or his favor in response to sin. If you've walked with God for a long time, you understand he is long-suffering. And he's very patient. But if you're new to that kind of relationship, you might think, oh no, he's, maybe he's capricious. Maybe he's going to reject me now that I've sinned against him. And this is exactly the spot that many new Christians find themselves. And it might be the spot in which you find yourself from time to time. Because all of us at certain points revert back to our spiritual newborn instincts. We all do that from time to time. And so John combats this sense of doubting by connecting our relationship with the Father to, clearly, he connects it to the substitutionary death of Christ. In other words, John indicates with these two statements that he says to the little children, he says that our knowledge of the Father, and that's at the end of verse 13, he connects our knowledge, our relationship to the Father with, it's the same thing as having your sins forgiven for the sake of Christ. And that's verse 12. And I hope you can see that connection. He writes to the little children for the first reason, which is forgiveness for Christ's sake. And then he writes his second reason that he's writing to them, because you know the Father, such that it connects to the first reason. He's combining these two points. So the main point that John wants to get across to the little children is this. It's that their relationship to the Father is connected to their forgiveness for Christ's sake. Their relationship with the Father is connected to their forgiveness for Christ's sake. Your relationship to the Father is 
connected directly to the fact that your sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake. And I want to draw out one very important implication to this point. And it will help, I hope, make the truth of it clear. Even the power of John making that connection clear. Why did John make that connection to assure us? We have to understand that John's assurance to the little children implies that our relationship to God is not dependent upon anything inside of ourselves. It's not dependent upon anything inside of ourselves. That's the important thing that John's saying here. He doesn't say that he writes, because you have put off sin, you have a relationship with the Father, even though that should be true. He doesn't write that because you're becoming more and more like Christ every day, you have assurance that you have a relationship with the Father. Because those two things would depend upon how well I put off sin or how well I'm becoming like Christ. You see that the connection between assurance and myself would have to do with me, with how well I'm performing. And if the connection between assurance and myself has to do with my performance, then I am in a miserable spot, and so are you as well. It is important to see that John connects God's forgiveness of our sin on account of Christ's death, and that is something that is completely outside of ourselves. John connects that external reality with our confidence in knowing God. In other words, we have confidence that we have a personal and inward relationship with the Father because of the fact that Jesus died for our sins on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And we certainly had nothing to do with that event, except, of course, the sins that he died for. But you weren't there. You weren't on the cross. Christ was. And this important idea really does fly completely against what we might naturally think. Because, you see, we naturally think that our relationship to a person is connected to our performance in their eyes. That's how we think about every earthly relationship. If you perform well at work, then your boss likes you. You enjoy a good relationship, hopefully. But if you don't perform, perform well at your job, then you're scared every time your boss walks around the corner. If you treat your friends and your neighbors rudely and harshly, then you will not enjoy a good relationship with them. But if you're kind and gentle and hospitable, you can usually expect to receive in return a good relationship. And we can think of countless other examples of how this principle applies to human relationships. But we simply cannot apply that scenario to a divine relationship. We can't do that. And the reason we can't do that should be strikingly obvious to us. Listen to the following verses that I'm going to read for you and think about how they relate to my relationship to God on account of my performance. Genesis 6, 5, and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted the, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
And then Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I hope that scripture there makes it clear that we are all hopelessly sinful, and as such, we cannot hope to maintain a relationship with God the same way we maintain relationships with each other, by treating each other well. We have so offended God that we have no hope of maintaining a decent relationship with him. That's just not possible. But even though God's word is the clearest and most powerful testimony to human sinfulness, we can even appeal to our conscience to make this point. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, beginning in verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And here's what they demonstrate. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And the point is that if every human being were honest, we would all admit that our consciences tell us that we're guilty before God. We all feel guilty. That's not the basis of a very healthy relationship with a person. This feeling of misery because of our own inherent sinfulness, it's not just a sensation for the lost and the unconverted. It's a feeling that even the most mature Christian feels in their life. Listen to what the super, the super Christian Apostle Paul. None of us would say that we're as mature as Paul. He's the father of fathers. And this is what he said about his own sinfulness at the end of Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He finds himself to be in wretched misery over his own sinfulness. And I hope the point is clear. 
that we cannot find within ourselves the stuff that affords a good relationship with God. We can't muster up anything that would qualify us inherently for a good standing with God. And we actually find the opposite in ourselves. We find sin and filth and impurity and disappointment and weakness and shame and misery. All of this and more we find when we look inside our hearts. All of this sin leads us to conclude that our best hope, our best effort, leads us to a very, 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 very bad relationship with our Creator. That's all that we can hope for left to ourselves. So, how could we ever be assured of what John says to the little children that he is writing to them because they know the Father? How can we be sure that we know the Father when all that we see in ourselves thoroughly disqualifies us from knowing him? And the answer to this question gets at the very heart of Christian assurance. You may have been a Christian for a number of years. You may have been a Christian for just a short time. You may wrestle a lot with assurance. Or you may not find it a constant and agonizing battle like some people do. But whatever the case, the answer to the question of assurance is the same for all of us. All of us look to the same answer that we might gain assurance that we know the Father. And it is this. The acquisition of confidence that we know the Father, gaining confidence that we can say for sure that we know the Father, that is connected to, directly connected to, the degree to which we understand the reality of the forgiveness of our sins for Christ's sake. The greater you understand Christ's or Christ's death that forgives your sins, the greater you understand your forgiveness as connected to Christ's death, the greater your assurance. Or conversely, the less you understand how Christ has forgiven your sin, the less assurance you have. There's a direct correlation between these two things, and that is precisely John's point in what he writes to the little children. John wants for his dear little children to not waver, to not doubt, to not worry, and so he directs their attention to the only thing in all the world that will truly assure them of their relationship with God the Father. It's not better performance. It's not more giving to church. It's not more evangelism. And it's not even directly more prayer, even though prayer is a part of how we gain this assurance. That's not it directly and specifically. The thing that will help a saint comprehend with assurance the fact that they know the Father is a deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of how Christ has secured their forgiveness. So essentially, when a, when a believer doubts or worries, oh no, do I really know the Father? Have I really blown it this time? The solution, 10 times out of 10, 10,000 times out of 10,000, is to go and understand how Christ, outside of you, has secured your forgiveness at the cross. So let me, as I close, offer just a couple practical points on this matter. 
And I'm going to frame them in kind of like a catechism, like a question-answer format for you. First of all, the first question on this issue of practical application, how do I gain a deeper knowledge of my forgiveness in Christ? How do I do that? If that's the way to grow in assurance, how do I gain a deeper knowledge of my forgiveness? And the answer to how you gain a deeper knowledge of your forgiveness, the answer is by studying the gospel contained in God's word. How do you do that? Study the gospel contained in God's word. There is no other source of information that can render assurance of one's relationship with God. And frankly, not even the best of sermons, not even the best of devotional books have anything to offer that is greater greater than that which you can read on your own in the Bible. It's helpful to listen to good teaching and it's helpful to read good books, but there's nothing like the gospel in the pages of God's word. Read the gospel in the Old Testament about how God promised deliverance to his people and how he foreshadowed it in the worship practices of Israel. And then read of the gospel playing out in living color in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then read of the apostles' doctrine of the gospel in the rest of the New Testament. So essentially all the Bible is the gospel. Anchor yourself to God's word and see how it points to or specifies Christ's securing of your forgiveness on the cross. And your assurance will be strengthened. Second question that we could pose to help in our assurance is this. We could ask, what exactly does my forgiveness in Christ refer to? Yes, I know I can read the whole Bible, but... What exactly or precisely am I to think about when I'm thinking about the fact that Christ has secured my forgiveness? What exactly does my forgiveness in Christ refer to? And the answer is this. Forgiveness for Christ's sake means that God the Father must do for Christ what Christ has earned. Forgiveness for Christ's sake means that God the Father must do for Christ what Christ has earned. And I framed it that way, all about Christ and Christ earning things, because it sets it clearly for us outside of self. God must do for Christ what Christ has earned. When Jesus lived the perfect life and then offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin, and when he bore actual sins on the cross... When God placed upon him all the sins that his people would ever commit. When that happened, Christ earned forgiveness for those sins on behalf of his people. He earned it. He deserves to have the Father forgive those sins. Why? Because he died for them. He lived the perfect life and then offered himself as an atonement for them. It would now be unjust For God to punish those sins for which Christ died. It would be unfair for God to withhold fellowship from a person for whom Christ died. It would be ungracious of God to fail to reward the Son for his accomplishments. If God were to withhold fellowship from a saint, he would be mistreating the Son because the Son earned it for the saint. And we know that's never going to happen. 
as the reward that Christ has won. It includes peace between God and sinners. And this is precisely the argument that Paul makes as he transitions from Romans chapter 4 to Romans chapter 5. Either listen or turn there as I read through this. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, which is the end of chapter 4, which is a great chapter on faith for justification. Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's him earning forgiveness. Delivered over for our trespasses. And then Paul begins chapter 5 like this. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, Jesus has accomplished justification for his people so that we must forevermore have peace with God. What Jesus has done has earned for us peace with God. And Christ must always get what he has earned. So in other words, my forgiveness in Christ means that God must look upon me with favor and with right relationship forevermore because that is what Christ's death for sin actually earned. And the Father cannot deny the Son his right. His right is that he would see me and you reconciled at peace with God. So that's specifically what the death of Christ has earned for us. And we look to that in order to boost our assurance. And then the third question that we could pose would be this one. Thirdly, we could ask, what is the benefit of me having assurance? What is the benefit of me having assurance in the first place? Just as a practical consideration. And the answer I would give is this, that assurance is actually the very foundation of all Christian growth. Assurance is the very foundation of Christian growth. So what's the benefit? You can grow. Essentially, there is no growth if you lack assurance. And our enemy knows this. Think of the second verse to a hymn we've sung before, before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair. Because if he gets me to despair, he's got me. And then what do we do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We rightly understand that assurance is the foundation for all growth in Christian maturity. Now we're good Protestants, unlike the Roman Catholic Church that teaches actually that assurance can never be attained and that it's foolish to try to get it. We rather believe scripture that teaches us that assurance of salvation is like the starting block for the entire race that follows. If you get off to a bad start, if you lose your footing on assurance, then you're going to stumble through the rest of the race. And as I close, if you would turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a place where we, we see that confidence in our faith is actually the foundation for all other Christian virtues. It's just a couple pages to the left from 1 John. Consider 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter says, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And then he goes on, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It sounds like he's building like Lego pieces, one thing on top of the next, or the one before. Then he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever who, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That sounds like a Christian who's stumbling and not going anywhere. And he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And notice all the way back at the beginning of what he says there in verse 5, what is the starting point to all of these other virtues that we're supposed to be cultivating in our life? It's faith. Verse 5, supplement your faith. He's presuming that faith, settled assurance that God has forgiven our sins, that's faith. Peter's presuming that that's already taken care of. And on top of that, we add all these other things. And we abound in them so that we might grow. If we have that assurance, if we have faith, if we have confidence in our relationship with God because of Christ's forgiveness that he has secured for us, if we have that, then we begin the journey of adding virtue upon virtue so that, as Peter says, we will not fall. So, John teaches the little children that their relationship with God is assured by means of their understanding of their forgiveness in Christ. So I hope that for all of us, whether you're one of the little children or not, whether you're a little child or a young person in Christ or one of the fathers or mothers, regardless, we need to be continually understanding that our confidence and assurance is connected not to ourselves, but to that which lay outside of us, the forgiveness Christ has won for us by his death. And so we'll pick up here next Sunday to learn of what he teaches to the fathers and to the young men as well. Father, I pray specifically this morning for any here who are the little children that John's writing to. Those who are tempted to think that they've begun a Christian journey and that their stumbling has rendered them incapable of having fellowship with the Father, help them to lift their eyes and see Christ on the cross in those moments when they're tempted to doubt and see that the Father cannot withhold fellowship with them, not even after the greatest of sins, because Christ has died for that sin. Christ has removed, and guilt, removed the guilt. Christ has removed the shame. Christ has removed the penalty. Christ has removed the burden of every sin that we have ever committed so that we might continually, at every moment, enjoy perfect fellowship with you. 
Help us to have that settled assurance and confidence as we look deeper and deeper into the glory of Christ's death for our sin on the cross. Help us to do this so that we might progress in maturity, becoming what you have have set forth for us to be, your workmanship created for good works that you've prepared for us to walk in, so that, as Peter says, we will never fall. So help us to that end, Father, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.